0: Unfortunately, there, there are a whole lot of folks that aren't doing anything. And I think that's what's really bringing us down as a society is, is we've got a lot of dead weight, so to speak, and a lot of kind of untapped potential, right? You could look at it negatively and say you're a lot of people sitting on their ass, or you could look at it as untapped potential. And that's my belief is if you could get all that brain power and all that even just arm power uh, kind of headed in the right direction to do good in the world, man, I think we'd be unstoppable as a people.
1: Ladies and gents, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm thrilled you're here. My name is Nick Lapara. Welcome. It is a very hot day in Nashville, which is something that I don't really have to say, I guess, anytime between spring and autumn. Uh, there is no spring here, in case you were wondering. We moved here in the in the fall, and there is no spring here. It went right from kind of a pretty dreary, sad winter to 80 degree days with 90% humidity pretty quickly, so we're not super thrilled about that, but I'm making the best of it by drinking a delicious cup of hot coffee, which I always do when it's hot outside. That's how I cope, is I drink hot coffee, and it's an amazing combination. Before we get into my guest this week, who is amazing, he's amazing, I'm so excited to introduce you to him. I just wanted to update you, because for the past few weeks, I've been telling you about the World Vision 6K for water that I was leading, here in Nashville. Well, it happened this past weekend, we did it. 44,000 people around the world on 1,100 sites walked for water. 44,000 people at least ensured that 44,000 other people around the world will never have to need water again. Every $50 contribution, which was the race registration fee, gives lasting water to one person in need where World Vision is working, and I trust World Vision. I love World Vision. So excited about the work they were doing. So I led a 6K for Water here in Nashville, and it was amazing. It was so much fun. The people were amazing. The walk was amazing. My six-year-old daughter joined me. It was truly the least we could do for so many people around the world that can't go into their home, turn on the faucet, turn on the shower, flush the toilet. They can't do these things that you and I take for granted. And cool thing, we hit our 1500 goal. We not only hit it, we surpassed it. I think as of right now, 1575. So I'm very grateful for the people that gave to our race, to our walk. We reached our goal, we're so thrilled. And lastly, you can still give. Every $50 gives lasting water to one person in need. You can still give at worldvision.letsgiveadam.com. But I wanted to update you because so many of you have asked about it and I've posted about it a ton. So I wanted to kind of give you a concluding bit of information on it. It happened. We did it. It was a success. And we're so thrilled and excited about doing it again next year. My guest today is Kevin Brown. Kevin is the CEO and co-founder of Mighty Ally. They're a one-part strategy consultant, one-part marketing agency, all parts maximizing capacity for impact. Kevin and I talked all the way from his home in Kampala, Uganda. We met at 2 p.m. my time, Central Standard Time, which was 10 p.m. his time. So grateful that he even chose to get on the call with me so we could record our conversation. You're gonna love Kevin. In our conversation, we talk adoption. We talk doing hard things. We talk moving to hard places because of decisions that we're making and things that we're seeing. We talk what they get to do as a a marketing agency, as a strategy agency. They get to do so much incredible work because of their skill set and their experience. And it was just a thrilling conversation. I'm so excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, Get ready, buckle up for my conversation with Kevin Brown, CEO and co-founder of
0: Mighty Ally. Let's go. Kevin, how are you? Hey, thanks, Nick. I'm doing well. How about yourself?
1: Fantastic. Uh, thanks for joining me. Where, where are you in the world right now? I am in
0: Kampala, Uganda. So uh, Kampala,
1: Uganda. And that's home for you.
0: It is, yeah. And it's- so
1: you are staying up late for us today. Um, so thank you so much for joining us
0: at such a late hour. Yeah, that's the way I roll. I try to keep uh, one leg here in Africa and the other in the states to try to do business in both places at once. <laughs> I love it. I love
1: it. Well, we'll get more into that here in a minute. What I'd love to do here at the beginning, though, is um, you know you've got this team that you run in this this organization you lead, Mighty Ally. We're going to get into all that here in a few minutes. We're also going to figure out why, why the hell you live in Uganda and not in the US. We're going to get into that. But what I'd love to start with is give us some context, uh, give us some, some background, some backdrop uh, for your life. What are the people, the places, the things that made you who you are today? Just go back as far as you want to and kind of whatever pops up in your head, just give us some context for what are the things that made you who you are today?
0: yeah, I guess it has to start with parents, right? Um, grew up just a pretty normal upbringing in uh, in Alabama. Um, had parents that that loved loved us and gave us plenty of opportunity and, and instilled hard work and definitely taught us the difference between right and wrong. Um, you know what's interesting is looking back on life and where I am today, we we didn't I didn't grow up with exposure to hardship or um, you know volunteering or international awareness. Uh, you know, heck we didn't even really travel outside of, uh, you know, maybe the States bordering Alabama, but, um, that was pretty much just a, a typical upbringing. And so, yeah, between that and then going to school in, in Louisiana and, and then living in Austin, Texas for a while. I mean, that was, that was life before we moved to Nashville. And, um, and I think things started to change once we moved to Nashville in terms of the trajectory of life. And I, um, married a girl from, from our hometown and, and, uh, that's kind of life
1: in a nutshell. So where in Alabama uh, did you grow up? What city specifically? It's
0: called Huntsville, and uh, it's a pretty international city for Alabama. You know, Alabama gets a bad rap. Um, some of it deserved, some of it undeserved, but Huntsville is a, pr- pretty pro- a more progressive city. It's got a lot of uh, automotive industry and NASA from different parts of, uh, of the world, and so you get a lot of transplants coming into Huntsville, and that's where I grew up
1: correct me if I'm wrong isn't the statistics something like like some of the smartest people in the country lived there because of all the rocket space science stuff that's going on
0: yeah totally it, I think it was actually u s News and World Report just named world reports so just named it uh, the seventh best city to live in in America and yeah due to NASA and just uh, I think it's outside of um, Silicon Valley and the Research Triangle in North Carolina, it's one of the biggest research hubs. And so it's surprising. People always say, hey, you don't sound like you're from Alabama and you don't act like you're from Alabama. And I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult, but it's definitely uh, due to where we grew up was a little bit different than, than some of the surroundings.
1: You noted a few seconds ago that some of the uh, things that people conjure up in their heads and their minds when they think of the South, some of it's deserved, some of it's not. Did you realize... Kind of some of those things growing up did you see some of those things and, and I guess I'm referring to just kind of some in some ways some antiquated thinking uh, some racism uh, those sorts of things w- was that part of your growing up uh, years or were you kind of secluded from it because
0: of being in Huntsville? no it was definitely all it was definitely all around um, I've, I've got family from actually my parents were from very small towns in Alabama and um, unfortunately they're just there are beliefs that were just ingrained in and folks uh, like my parents and, um, and and others in the family. I mean, just really otherwise good people that might have grown up with with beliefs that are, are kind of counter uh, counter to what we might otherwise believe today. And so, yeah, growing up as a kid, I, I remember vividly um, just the, the first time I was old enough to hear the N word and know that it was offensive, and it was just used in passing at a at an auto body shop. Uh, my parents' car was in the shop, and uh, the owner. Turned around and, and said it to the, the kid's face. He said, "Hey, you know, in boy, go get the car." And he wasn't being derogatory; he was just calling him that uh, because that's what he called him. And I remember, I remember being old enough to be bothered by it, uh, but obviously not old enough to do something about it. And so, you know, memories like that um, were definitely pretty common growing up.
1: You know, we've uh, my family and I have been in Nashville for a few months now, and we've noticed that. Definitely here in Nashville, it's a it's a lot more progressive than other parts of the South even are today. But even even so, the other day I met my kids were playing with a little girl in the front yard, and um, her her great grandmother watches her three houses down, and her her dad came over, and introduced himself to me and was coming over to make sure his daughter was you know playing fairly and everything, and so we started talking. And within 30 seconds, and, I, and I'm, I kid you not, I'm not lying. Within 30 seconds of shaking his hand and introducing myself with his name, he said the N-word. Like within 30 seconds, and he was describing the area of town that he lives in and he called it, you know, it's N-Town. And it's like a mile from my house, this place where he lives. And um, I just thought like, we have not encountered a lot of that here in Nashville proper, but to, to realize that that's still very much a way of speaking for a lot of people. Uh, You know, it's a way of, it's a way of life for a lot of these people. They still think. And, and it's so front of mind in front of like tongue for them that within 30 seconds of meeting a complete stranger, they think it's okay to like drop that. These are not their homies that they're like hanging with, you know, at the house. This is like a, a complete stranger
0: yeah. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, it's, you know, what's, what's crazy about it is in, in retrospect, I mean, they're, again, I don't want to try to defend, um, you know, defend the, the, the actions or the behavior, but a lot of the folks that, that use some of those words, I mean, it's just what they're, what they're taught and, and, and it's, uh, it's just how you grow up. And I mean, i I know cousins, uh, say, you know, we, we actually, there's one, one example of, of, of interracial marriage in my family, which is otherwise, uh, really, um, I don't know if taboo is the right word, but I mean, I, I, there's, you know, there's just, you hear people talk about things and you know, that, that it's not there. Their, uh, there's nothing wrong with the, with them or their, their, their heart's not dark. It's just the way that they're brought up. And, you know, and I, I, I was brought up the same way. I mean, I, I, it's hard to admit, but I, to this, you know, today I can sit here and say that, yeah, I was, I was racist at one point in my life. And, and even maybe as, as recently as 10 or 15 years ago, and, and we all I think have it. Right. And so I think it's, one of the first steps is just being able to admit it and, and to understand what racism is and understand what privilege is. I mean, hell, that's another subject to, you know, this idea of privilege. I, I, even as recently as two or three or five years ago, I would have said, "Like I'm not privileged. I worked hard to get where I where I got." And then the last couple of years was kind of just one of those, "Holy shit! Yes, I'm privileged," and and I, I need to admit, I need to admit that because the first step is is learning about it and admitting it and coming to grips with it, and then you can start changing not only your behaviors but but those around you. Hopefully,
1: yeah, that's you're spot on. Fantastic we all have a little bit of it in us and you're right the first step is being honest about it and then working out those kinks in our life working out the areas of yeah untruth that we've been told or that we've been telling ourselves yeah great advice so so you said you grew up you know you're you're kind of a racist kid and that you've come a long way since then kind of take me through the next few years where did you go to college what were the kind of things that happened in your life that brought you take me up until from where you left off until just prior to like mighty ally let's let's go through that next part of your life
0: Sure. Yeah. So uh, I was kind of an underachieving kid in high school, to tell you the truth. And then funny enough, uh, after just being a probably a C or B uh, grade kid in high school, I, I walked onto the college campus at LSU, uh, Louisiana State, and just uh, set an audacious goal because that's what I do in life. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to make anything but A's in college. And I think my parents chuckled a little bit, but I came pretty darn close to it. I think I made Uh, two B's or something like that. And so, yeah, I was a pretty high achiever in college. Um, ran the school newspaper part of leadership LSU, just whatever, did, did what I could, uh, partied quite a bit as well, just, uh, formed a lot of great friendships and, um, yeah, it's still funny to think about where I am now in and, and college. I had no inkling of, of international exposure or awareness of, of just poverty or hardship. I mean, I, I did nothing in college in terms of volunteerism or, you know, I was, wasn't involved in any sort of international student unions. I mean, I was a, just a pretty, pretty average, hardworking, white college kid that, you know, drank a whole lot of beer and then studied really hard. And then just four years later, uh, I moved to Austin, Texas uh, at, right after college.
1: What happened from college through you know when did you get married and all of this start you know start to think about a family and all of that?
0: Yeah, so uh, married a few years after college, uh, still with a high school sweetheart, um, lived in Austin, Texas, and I had a great had a great uh, run through the twenties we were actually just talking about it today. Today's our fourteenth wedding anniversary. and Oh wow, congrats. We Hey, I thanks. Yeah, we were just—I'm on a podcast with you, Nick. So that's how I spent my anniversary. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, I, I deeply apologize. No, uh, my wife's asleep, and I'm on a podcast. So that's—that's that's how awesome it gets when you're 14 years in. I think there's—it's like gold and silver, and all these different analogies. And then uh, 14 years is uh, wife asleep, and you're on a podcast. I think perfect. That's like
1: the, I'll, I'll remember that. I'm four years away from that.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, married a few years in, uh, lived in Texas, um, worked in the ad industry, uh, ended up with a dream job. Um, I ran marketing and, and um, brand uh, activation for uh, music, sports, and, and live events. Um, just kind of cool, cool gig where I got to work with some awesome music festivals and celebrities. And then, um, yeah, I moved to, moved to Nashville, honestly, to get closer to family in Alabama. You know, at that point, some Family had started to age and just realized that, hey, if we do start a family one day, we want to be closer and in retrospect, it's funny that we moved two hours from family and then now we're uh, 8,000 miles away. But uh, yeah, moved closer and, and lived in Nashville the, the worked in the, in the music industry for a while. Uh, that was actually my first taste of starting a business was um, the company I worked for. Crazy enough, uh, we moved to Nashville and it was actually my anniversary, funny enough, uh, 10 years ago today that... Uh, we we had moved to Nashville and settled into this company, and then Ticketmaster bought the company and decided to shut it down. So, about 100 people were laid off overnight. And it, again, one of those just, oh crap, what have we done moments? We picked up and moved away from a city we loved. We took a job. Um, but the really awesome sort of lining out of that experience was that I, I was essentially forced into starting a business with a couple of the guys from that company. And uh, I had no inklings of starting a business. We were. Late twenties, I my wife had a, her own business, and we didn't didn't really have a high risk profile, but we were kind of forced into it, and that was my first taste of entrepreneurship. And I'm so glad it happened the way it did because I don't think I could take a day job uh, like I used to for anything now.
1: Tell me about your your family makeup, your kids. I know there's some international adoption mixed in there, which which led to you guys being where you are today. Uh, give me some insight into that. I know that there, there was also some, I don't think we talked about this during our first chat, but I think there's failed adoption in your h- history as well as there is in our you know, family story. So take me through some of that adoption stuff because adoption is very near to my heart and probably near to the heart of a lot of people listening. So, yeah, what has adoption meant to you guys and kind of how has that played out in your lives?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. You I know, mean, people ask, how did we how did we get started with adoption? And funny enough, we were in our early 30s, didn't know if we were going to have kids or not. We'd kind of tried, but kind of not. And um, we were just living the good life of, of being uh, dual income, no kids. And uh, so we were big documentary fans. Funny enough, people ask how it started. And I think we just randomly picked a, a documentary about the Lost Girls of China and just really uh, documenting the plight of, 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 the one child policy and how, how the culture there really favors boys instead of girls. And so you see so many girls just you know, literally abandoned, uh, in parks or, or in sewer drains or whatever. And so we watched that documentary and it was kind of one of those just sparks that the spark, uh, was lit. And then we started exploring it more. And, uh, once, once our eyes were open to it, we just very quickly realized, all right, this is something we want to do something about. Um, so uh, our first adoption was was in China in 2014. And um, we were pretty naive to the orphan crisis and, and the whole, uh, all the causes that led up to it. But I think I might have told you this the first time we chatted. Um, we brought our daughter into our family on a Monday. And on a Wednesday, we, in China, visited her, the orphanage that she grew up in. And uh, just, you know, saw rooms and rooms full of, of babies laying in their beds. And it's, it's quite wild. It's, uh, you know, the babies are motionless. They're, they're not making a sound. They've essentially learned not to cry because nobody's going to come. Um, you know, the nannies are doing the best they can, but they're dealing with just hundreds and hundreds of babies. And so in that, in that moment, my wife and I just, you know, we're sobbing, we're holding our first daughter in our arms, but we're just sobbing. And, um, you know, Mark, Mark Twain has a quote, he says, the two most important days of your life, are the day you were born and then the day you found out why and for me that was the day that that I found out why I was 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 living and and that was to do something about it and so we we sat there in tears in, in our daughter's orphanage and said we're gonna do something about this one day and so that was the beginning of, of really I would say what ripped our hearts open in terms of just seeing um, the hardship for the first time and kind of weaving the story back together you know thinking about growing up and thinking about college and even starting businesses in the past I mean it was a pretty pretty good life right and then you see this kind of hardship firsthand and you see what what poverty and desperation can do and 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 with our daughter in particular she uh, she had a, a, a medical special need and she was left with a hospital note and a, and a little buddha necklace around her neck on the on the doorsteps of the orphanage and so you know we believe and 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 know in our hearts that that her mom and or parents really loved her and and that they were in a desperate place and and were forced to to give her up and so you know that family day actually just happened three three days ago was our four year anniversary of being with our daughter and um, you know every every family day we we take a picture to to replicate the first one we took together and then we also we light a candle and and think about China mom and just kind of say a a prayer of gratitude for for what she went through to to give us such a a bundle of joy so yeah that was the beginning of that
1: man that's a crazy story wow and now uh, take me through from that moment to Uganda right because you're there as a result of
0: more adoption stuff right yeah yeah right i mean this is where life just kind of takes you p- p- picks you up and takes you by the hand at times and kicks your ass at times yeah but, um, yeah we, you know at that point we were we were just uh you know, again, hearts ripped open and, and minds racing around not only the desperation we saw in the world, but also just well, you know, what do we do about this? And, and we felt like, uh, in particular, the orphan crisis was something we were passionate about and We just wanted to explore more. Um, we knew that, that a lot of African countries had, uh, quite a desperate orphan crisis and and we didn't know anything at the time, but we just wanted to do something about it. And, you know, in hindsight, I don't know that we would have jumped straight to adoption because, uh, uh, you know, as I sit here today, I, I believe, and, and we've seen that adoption should be really a last resort for for children. You know, they they deserve to grow up in their home countries and hopefully with some sort of family. Um, you know, in China, it's different because uh, there it, it's illegal to give up a child. So, with our daughter, uh, she was abandoned, uh, much like uh, every child there, and there's no no tracing really any sort of family. Um, but in these African countries, uh, most of the time, these these kids that are in uh, orphanages have family. And so, uh, but we set out doing the, doing what we uh, thought we could do f- about the situation and we set out to adopt again. And, um, you know, no sugarcoating it. We, we came in to a, a, a d- difficult environment here in Uganda and, um, the process took about a year before we were supposed to even be matched. Uh, we had one failed, failed adoption with a match about 24 hours before we were supposed to fly. Uh, uh the case fell through with that little girl. And then three, month, three months later, we, we got here and landed and spent about two months with another little girl. And then that case fell through. And, um, you know, of course, people say, I'm, I'm so sorry. And, and it, it wasn't about us at that point. It was about seeing just more desperation and more children that just deserved some sort of family. And so... Um, yeah, long story longer. We, uh, had two more cases at that, that particular orphanage that had had fallen through. We, we lived next door for five months, you know, shared a fence with these children, just fell in love with them. I mean, we're with them every single day and, you know, we're there for their, um, you know, blood, sweat and tears and laughter and joys and also their pains. And, and unfortunately, after about five months living there, we had to move on because it was just a bad situation. And, uh, we realized that if we wanted to continue this journey we were going to have to to start up kind of start over and start elsewhere what
1: is it specifically about the ugandan culture and the politics around adoption that it it, it kept falling through and it took so long like yeah what was going on there cuz i know it's obviously hard all around i mean our failed adoption was right here in the us but like what what specifically was happening there that it just took you know it just took months and months and f- fall through and then another one you know like what was going on there
0: yeah that's a it's a question we get all the time i mean the you know the number one question is why is adoption so expensive and why does it take so long when there are so many children there? right by some by some estimates there are 147 million orphans and in the world and, and that number is slightly misleading because uh, that counts uh you know kids that might have lost one or both parents but living with grandparents but still there are there are millions of, of kids that need families that's un, unquestionable and you know in countries like uganda man where do we start right um, you know post-colonialism there was just a you know there's there's civil war there's a lack of education there's poverty there's just systems that that were never put in place there's uh you know, uh, government, uh, government corruption. I mean, there's just so much to it that, that led to just, um, you know, some not only impoverished situations and desperate families, but just systems not being there to, to deal with, with, with kids, uh, when they, when they do fall on, on these tough times. And so, you know, for us in particular, um, we're actually grateful that a couple of, of the cases fell through, for, uh, in some ways, and then and then in other ways, we're still heartbroken at these at the loss that these children face. Um, you know, I say grateful because uh, some of these kids, in hindsight, had family, and and you know, not to get too deep into it, but we believe now that um, if a child has a family, that's that's where they belong. And we, as Americans, as Westerners, as as those who want to uh, give a damn, um, you know, to jump straight into it, we should be. Uh, enabling more um, more families to stick together and and if if those families can't stick together and there's no there's no families for the kids even with extended families then then in-country foster parents or in-country adoption and and only then should you know an american couple come in and swoop in and take an african child into their family because otherwise it's it's I mean, all adoption starts with loss and if you take a kid out of their homeland i mean that's just further loss on them so yeah, that's our belief. And in, and in our cases, um, you know, some cases fell through just because there was family and, and family was, was coming, uh, kind of stepping up and, and and realizing what was going on. And, and in some cases, trying to do uh, what was right. And in some cases, I think just, uh, you know, maybe seeing some dollar signs. And, and so, yeah, it was just a messy, messy situation.
1: So part of your story, which you kind of just alluded to it is, you know, as a part of one of your beliefs is that you are in Uganda now because you don't want to take that child out of of their homeland, of, out of their their home, that's pretty radical by anyone's standards, right? Because lots of kids, you know, leave uh, these third world and under under countries and they go back to UK and to Australia and to yeah. you know and, and to America. And yeah, you're, t- you're 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 uprooting these children away from everything they've ever known, and then expecting them to acclimate to a completely new different you know country and culture and society. And you guys said we're not doing that. Like, that's pretty radical. Like, what... So uh, you you, you actually do believe what you just said, and you're doing it in a way that, like, no, we're going to
0: live here in uganda for now for now forever yeah well that's the big question if, if our parents weren't listening i might answer it more, more directly but um yeah i mean it's for now right so number one i mean that so we did finally uh really end up with a case after really being selective about the type of adoption we would pursue you know we, we we drew the line and said that if these children have families that you know they're not orphans in our minds and we can do we can do something to help them uh get uh, you know reinstated back into their families but if there are some children that truly have no other no other choice like right there's no local foster families there's no local adopt uh, adoptive families if that does truly uh, uh you know present itself then then we would be open to uh, you know not only fostering but adopting and that's essentially what we've been doing the last year is the two little girls are, are with us in our family now and and they had uh, they had been abandoned and there's no trace of family and nobody has has been willing to take them in and so we're, we're taking them in and um, we're, they're still not fully adopted, and so as of now, we actually don't have a choice. They they don't really even exist on paper in terms of a birth certificate or passport, and so we can't even cross the Ugandan borders with them. So for now, we live in Uganda, and um, they're with us, and I think we'll, we'll decide what the future holds, but it's, it's definitely not going to be just rushing back to to American norms of, of access and, uh, and just uprooting them out of everything they've known, especially for the older one that's, uh, you know, six going on seven. I think it would be pretty dangerous to just throw her in another environment without, without a really, uh, really thoughtful process.
1: That's craziness. I love it. I love it. Uh, I mean, I know it's not easy what you're kind of what you're describing, this life you're describing, but I love the kind of the heart behind it. Um, Let's talk Mighty Ally. So the work that you're doing, because this is one of the reasons that I got connected to you through our mutual friend uh, Tim. And yeah, let's talk Mighty Ally. And I want to get to after we talk this, talk about this. I have a couple questions that I want to dig into for a few minutes around uh, social enterprise work, for profit, nonprofit, that sort of thing. For anyone listening. That wants to head this direction. I think you've probably got some really good advice and experience yeah. in this that we can share. Before we get there, though, describe what you're doing so people can get kind of a, an idea of, uh, yeah, what is Mighty Ally? What's Why do you exist? What do you hope to see happen?
0: Yeah, great question, and good job weaving the whole story together. Um, so yeah, we were here in Uganda, and we were actually still living next to the, to the orphanage that I described earlier. Um, I had been a partner in a marketing firm in Nashville, and Due to the unforeseen delays in our process, I had started working remotely. I thought I was just going to be taking a couple months off and and heading back to America with our new little girl, and uh, uh, obviously life took another direction. And so I started working remotely from from this uh, guest house next to the orphanage, and it was quite crazy because just like right now, it's about ten o'clock here and two o'clock there in the central uh, central time zone, and I would be doing a video call with my team back in Nashville and. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, talking to a, a conference room full of bright people, and we're using you know, technology and big budgets to solve problems for brands. And and then, literally, right outside my window, there are people that are suffering. Right? It's uh, it was night after night that that no joke, the power would go out in this entire slum, and the only light for a mile around would be the blue screen of my laptop. And and it just hit me, just that this is crazy, right? I'm, I'm on a video conference with, with great people. And there's nothing wrong with those people, but we're solving problems for brands and and we're doing this great strategy and marketing work. And then outside my window, I mean, I have more light than a lot of people do right now uh, because of my business conference call. So, um, it was just a level of disparity that that we weren't comfortable with. And that's really what sparked the conversation um, between my wife, who is a co-founder and mighty ally. And then Kathleen, who uh, funny enough, was on the other end of that conference call. She was a partner in the same business and the three of us just started talking and, you know, instead of uh, instead of starting a mission ourselves to do something about the desperation we saw, or or instead of you know just starting another nonprofit, what we realized that we could do to to best kind of just help the world, so to speak, is that we could use the skills that we had honed over the course of our careers. I mean, we had been strategy professionals and marketing professionals. We had run businesses. We had worked with you know, hundreds of clients across multiple industries and all different shapes and sizes. And so what we realized we should do is do what we've been doing our whole careers, but instead of serving just publicly traded brands or, or for-profit brands, serve those in the social sector, You know, serve change makers, serve those that are on the front lines doing the world's most important work, whether they're a nonprofit or a social enterprise. And give them the kind of agency and consultancy and the same kind of services that the big dogs can afford. And so that was the impetus of it all was honestly just night after night of power outages and, and and being on conference calls with my team in Nashville and just realizing there's something wrong with this picture and there's something we can do about it. So what kinds of projects have you worked on? Like what, what have you seen happen as a
1: result of you pursuing this dream of mighty ally uh, so far? I know, you know, you're still building it. It's got, it has a, has a lot, lot, to grow, obviously, but yeah, kind of. What have you seen happen um, so far?
0: So our focus is really, uh, we describe it as a, we're a one part consultancy, like a strategy consultancy, and we're also one part marketing agency, and and we work with what we call underserved change makers. So we, instead of going after the big nonprofits and the big social enterprises, you know, we're not trying to work with. Uh, Habitat for Humanity or Red Cross, or we're not trying to work with Tom Shoes. I mean, we're we're working with smaller organizations that lack the ability to, to do the work that we do. And you know, there's some pretty staggering stats out there, like one third of all nonprofits and social enterprises operate in the zone of insolvency. I mean, they're just literally trying to get the bills paid. And you know, you see it every day. These nonprofits are started by a person with a passion, or or maybe they're being run by experts in the field, but they're not necessarily business. Um, business owners or business entrepreneurs, they, they don't necessarily have those skills, nor do they have the team to, to do the right strategy and marketing that, that we're just used to um, in the private sector. So uh, so our work is to really enable them to, to fulfill their missions and visions. And in the first year we've served, I believe, eight different clients and serving in about six different countries. So a couple of, of nonprofits uh, here in Uganda, one in Kenya, one that was working in Colombia, uh, an orphan Care organization out of Mexico and Honduras. I mean, really, uh, what we say is we serve any any change maker that's fighting for basic human needs. So whether that's poverty, hunger, health, education, equality, or water, that, that's where where we play, and, and we give them the kind of agency that that the big dogs can afford. So obviously,
1: if a if a nonprofit leader or or a team of nonprofit leaders. If they're you know living paycheck to paycheck, as it were, if they're essentially like just months or weeks away from you know going under, the pressure of that is going to prevent them from uh, being effective from doing the work they're called to do, right? Yeah. And so, talk to me, but talk to those listening that may want to start a nonprofit, or they may have this like this this vision, this problem they want to tackle, this thing they want to, this evil they want to eradicate, something that they want to do, right? Talk me through the difference. Like what's your and obviously this is your opinion, right? It's an informed opinion, but this is your opinion. But give us your case for should they start a nonprofit? Should they start a social enterprise business? Should they try to make as, you know, start a, a, a for-profit business that makes as much money as possible so that they can use those resources for good. Like, how should they go about this? And obviously, again, this is opinion. Everyone that's listening, like you, do what you need to do. Do what you do what you feel called to do. But I think there is some wisdom we can learn from what Kevin is going to tell us right now, and, and from my 15 years in nonprofit work, where we literally were just—it was a shit show most of the time. We were just trying to just trying to keep up, like every just like trying to not go broke, leaving us pretty
0: ineffective in the work that we were doing. So yeah, what's your? G- give me your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean it's a great question. I mean the, the, the easy answer is don't don't go start a nonprofit tomorrow. I mean uh, you know funny enough, part of our model is we're a hybrid, you know, nonprofit social enterprise hybrid. But we did a lot of thinking and research, and we had done a lot of. Uh, volunteering in the space, and we had done you know, uh, advising social enterprises and nonprofits, and been on boards and whatnot. And I think the common knee jerk is that someone gets passionate about something and they start a nonprofit, and and that's something that's crippling the space. Is there are so many similar nonprofits that are all vying for the same money or the same staff or or, or, or the same good. I mean, even in, in your own backyard, whether it's in Uganda or or Alabama or, or Tennessee, you've got just nonprofits that are doing the same thing, and so you know, the, the first answer is don't just start a nonprofit, right? Really take a step back and think about you know, what are the problems you're trying to solve? You know, for, for me, that, that Mark Twain quote, you know, I, I realized, look, this is, this is the, the, the day that I found out why I was born is to do something about this human suffering. Um, and then from there, I just took the next logical step I and mean, we we researched, we learned, we, we, again, we did volunteering and served on boards. Um, you know, it was kind of uh, Hemingway talks about, I think someone asked how, how, did he go bankrupt? And he said, gradually, then suddenly, <laughs> and I think that, uh, that, that, that phrase really kind of epitomizes everything we've done. I mean, I, I think on the surface it's, wow, you've started this new entity and, and you just did it overnight. And it really, it was gradually, then suddenly, I mean, everything that we talked about from the personal standpoint led to this, this endeavor with Mighty Ally and everything I've done professionally led to this endeavor. And so um, I would say, find out, find out what you're passionate about, right? Find out why you were born, um, take the next logical step uh, or steps, however long that might be, you know, treat it as a gradual then sudden thing. And, and yeah, the outcome might be uh, joining a nonprofit to work. It might be, uh, it might be using your for-profit business for good. I mean, that's a whole nother topic that we're passionate about at Mighty Ally is how you can use business for good. Um, You know, it might be a social enterprise that kind of blends the two models. I mean, there's a lot of different outcomes, but uh, I think the the key is to really take your time, understand the space, look for gaps in the market, right? And don't just go start something that's already out there. Because if it's already out there, they could probably use you more than they could use you starting something different.
1: That's fantastic advice. Uh, There are you know, 50,000 nonprofits all trying to build wells and water, you know, and they keep popping up because someone, a well-intentioned human that has a heart for getting people water, which is still a huge thing. There are, you know, close to a billion people in the world that don't have clean water, you know, anywhere near their, their home, their place of residence. And so, yes, it's this is a real thing, but you going through the 501c3 process and getting your website and your team and fundraising and all that could that be better better used could your skills and your passion be better you know better serve people if you were to join something that already exists i think that's a great that's a great way to look at it so don't, don't just go out there and start something just for the hell of it but also business as a force for good i mean because all these things eradicating, whether it's the water crisis or homelessness or orphans or sex trafficking, any of these things requires mountains of money, right? On top of skill and on top of people and resources and brains and ideas, it requires money. That's just how things work on planet earth. And so for a lot of these people, I think you're better off the way you said it, business is a force for good, like going the route of, what are you good at? How can this be used in a way to? How can you sell a service or a product to somebody? A good service and a good product, uh, make money, build a team, build an actual viable business for your for your family, and then you'll you're inevitably going to have more money, right? If you if you're good at what you do, if you really hone in those skills and whatever, you're going to have money yep. that you can now do something with. You can you know you can buy your second house or your boat or you know whatever you want to, or you can use that money to fix the same thing you wanted to start a nonprofit about you know, two years ago or three years ago or five years ago. Not that people shouldn't start nonprofits, but it's very limited what charities and nonprofits can do in the long run uh, because everything they need to do requires money. And if everybody that has a heart for these things just goes and starts another nonprofit, there'll be no money.
0: There's no money, right? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, the, the, there's no better example than it's a little bit cliche, but look at Bill Gates, right? And yeah, he is the he is arguably done more to save lives in, in the social sector than than. I mean, Maybe anyone in history, and he started as a businessman, and I don't know his, his history uh, from starting Microsoft, but did he ever have in mind that he would start one of the world's most powerful foundations and literally save millions of lives? I doubt it, right? But he used his business value to, to drive social good, and so I think that's just a great example of, of how you can be uh, Again, a, you know, a, you can change the world by by taking different paths, and and maybe look, maybe you do want to start something, and maybe you're an entrepreneur, and I, I don't want to discourage anyone from starting something. I, I know we just did a year ago, but we were also entrepreneurs. We had started businesses, and we also saw a major gap in the market, and so that was our path. But uh, whether you you know join uh, my brother, for example, he's he's a career guy at a, at a major. Uh, a major accounting firm, but he's about to be the chair of, of the board of a major nonprofit in Austin, Texas. And that's his path for doing good in the world. And he has his day job. He does audit during the day, uh, but quote at night, he, he gives back by, by serving on a board. And so there's a lot of different ways to give a damn. And, and I think a lot of times we see that the, the knee jerk reaction is I need to go start a nonprofit. And that's just generally not the case.
1: Yeah, in every one of these nonprofit organizations need a board, right? Like you I'm glad you mentioned that with your brother. All they need a board that has diverse, you know, people bringing diverse skill sets to the table, wealth, you know, wisdom, and all these different things. Like they don't just need, you know, wealthy people on the board or people full of wisdom or people that bring a specific skill set. They need all of those things. So every nonprofit needs a board and a board that's going to stick with them and help them, you know, raise money and put on events and travel to the field with them. And so again if that, if all the talented people are begging for money for their new nonprofit they just started, who's serving the other nonprofits that have already you know been started and, and established and going for a while and so I don't want to shit on nonprofits like <laughs> there's there's it it, it it might sound like that, but for everybody listening like I, that's not what I'm doing. I'm saying let's be wise about it because there's only so many there are only so many resources um there's only so much money to go around and so I just want people to think more wisely. I spent a lot of time, a long time, most of my short career so far, ten plus years in nonprofit world, and I left for that very reason because I wanted to be a force for good. As I build, let's give a damn. As I build, you know, these companies that I'm that I've already be- begun, you know, building, plus other things that I have going. Like I want that to be a force for good, you know, in the in the for profit space. Let's tackle this for a few minutes. Um, as we begin to wind down here, we've been going for 40 minutes or so. There are a lot of crazy things happening in the world and it's easy to feel overwhelmed. It's easy to feel to feel everything that's going on so much so that we don't do anything, right? That's why what I just described is exactly why I started Let's Give a Damn because we can get so overwhelmed with all the atrocities going on. Like within a mile, if I, if I want to have a terrible day, here's what I do. I think that within a mile of my home right now, some wife is getting abused by her husband. Some kid is getting molested. There's human trafficking in some way happening within a mile of my house. Like something terrible is happening really close to me right now. And that's for everybody listening, that's the case, unless you're out in the middle of a field in Iowa. But for for most of us, that's a reality that like just really bad, evil, shitty things are happening around us and it can get so overwhelming. And so, a lot of people, both people with very little means, both financial means, skill set means, and also very powerful people, resort to thoughts and prayers. Right? Yeah. Something terrible happens. Uh, you know, just just last week, the U.S., U.K., and Germany collaboratively, you know, bombed you know Syria and D- Damascus and some other areas. And it's so easy to see that and, and not feel it fully, not really feel that innocent people died there. Wherever you stand on that, on whether or not that should have happened, innocent people were murdered, innocent people that have suffered through so much over the last few years in Syria were, were bombed to bits um, as a result of this thing that just happened, you know, that we helped, that we did, you know? So how do we go, in your opinion, in your experience, how do we go from thoughts and prayers Kind of people when a school shooting happens, what are we going to do? Are right. we going to, you know, lob our, our thoughts and prayers out there, or are we going to march in the March for Our Lives, or am I going to take my six year old daughter out of school uh, this Friday on the twentieth, you know, for the National School Walkout Day in in, in remembrance of Columbine? Like, am I going to do that and then explain to her, or am I going to say thoughts and prayers? Hope it doesn't happen the next time. So, what's your sense? What's your encouragement here? What are some tips and tricks? some wisdom uh, in terms of going from thoughts and prayers kind of people to people of action
0: yeah that's a great question and i mean i think the first thing to say is uh, you know as this thoughts and prayers meme has sprung up there's been a whole lot of folks from different religious communities that have said oh are you saying we're, we shouldn't pray now and, and of course i mean if prayer is your thing pray of course uh, you know give good thoughts right i'm a big believer and i know as cheesy as it is the whole butterfly effect like one good thought could potentially yeah yeah or what you know right reverberate around the world like i believe in in, in you know putting good things out into the universe and and, and they'll be felt by others and so that that is necessary, right? So pray, have good thoughts, but also do something. And and that's why there's the meme of after Puerto Rico, you know, you see on the internet uh, a, 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 an image of an empty truck, and it says, "Your thoughts and prayers have arrived." Because thoughts and prayers ultimately, and this might be a, a belief that others will argue, but it's not going to do anything, right? You've got to you've got to use. Uh, use your hands, use, you should use your feet and do something about it. You know, there's this term slacktivism. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's new to me as of a few weeks ago. Um, it's basically, you know, if you like something or sign a petition or, or share someone's Facebook post, you, you kind of feel good about yourself. Right. And, and that's, uh, you, you think that that's going to be uh, a supplement for other things you do in the world. But for a lot of people, it's psychology, it's, it's been proven through psychology. It's actually, It's substituting for people actually doing something out there. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to think about this this apathy that exists in the world. And and I think you and I might have touched on it the first time we spoke. Um, You know, the most incredible example, there's a TED Talk by an Australian philosopher named Peter Singer. And I urge anyone to watch it. It's about effective altruism. And it's fascinating because he shows this video of a two-year-old girl in China who gets hit by two different vans and, and a, a, a camera catches it like a security camera catches it. 18 different people walk by this little girl as she's laying in the street. And, and of course you watch this and you're just mortified. And, and during the Ted talk, he has everyone raise their hand and he says, who, who would have, who would have stopped and done something? Everyone raises their hand. And then he says, well, not so fast. He says uh, 6.9, million children died this year from preventable diseases you know nineteen thousand just today you know does it matter that we're not walking in front of them in the street wow so i think we've just really got to you know really got to check ourselves and and you know it's i think it goes back to this idea like mother teresa had had this quote about if she looks at the or she says if i look at the mass i will never act if i look at one i will and i think that's the idea is like just start somewhere because it is overwhelming right I mean, you look at 147 million orphans and you don't know what to do about it, but you just dig in and take that next logical step. And, and you, you know, you might end up with a couple of uh, kids in your family through adoption or through fostering, or you might end up, you know, serving on the board of an organization that, that deals with orphan care, but it's just doing something. It's taking that next logical step because thoughts and prayers aren't enough. Sharing on Facebook isn't enough. Honestly, donating isn't even enough. I mean, we need action beyond uh, those measures.
1: Yeah that's really great uh slacktivism um I am going to add that to my vocabulary but it's so true anyone sitting in that room anybody listening you me us sitting in that ted talk we're saying no I would never walk by her right that's unconscionable that that would happen and it's like no but we do that every single day um by our you know we retweet stuff and we give a few dollars here and there I'm I'm leading a uh, 6K for water for World Vision on May 19th, along with tens of thousands of people around the world, right? And that's great that I'm I'm going to get a few dozen people to give $50, hopefully, to this race, and, and we can walk 6K and do all that. But that's the beginning step. That's the first step. But I like how you ended there. That's the thing is taking the very first step. Like, it seems, you know, a journey of 1,000 miles begins with one step. Like, it... it we have to just get going. We have to get our engine going, which then, you know, once we start moving, we feel better about it. We feel more confident about it. But as long as we're standing still physically, mentally, emotionally, then it just feels like overwhelming. But then we get going. Then we get moving. Things start to happen.
0: Yeah. That's where progress. Yeah. That's where progress is made. I mean, the same Ted talk, Peter Singer, I'd urge anyone to look it up. Uh, he talks about why people don't do anything and why they walk past uh, girls on the street and you know, figuratively. And you know, some people worry about the difference they can make in the world. Some people worry about time. Um, Some people think charities aren't effective. I mean, that's where there's a lot of different ways to do good without just a traditional charity model. And and look, the takeaway is, you know, we've talked about nonprofits and social enterprises. We've talked about thoughts and prayers and money and and doing something. I mean, the truth is it it takes it all, right? I mean, we're still dealing with so many significant social problems, whether it's in your own backyard or or around the world. And it takes it all and there's a, another quote sorry i'm a king of quotes but there's a quote about all those little bits of good that are that will add up to really change the world and, and that's my belief right is it's going to take nonprofits here and there it's going to take social enterprises it's going to take brands it's going to take people donating people praying people doing little bits of good people doing lots of bits of good and that's the takeaway is you just got to find your place in the world and and i think that's what i get passionate about is if, if even if your piece is small that's 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 something and if you're heading in the right direction that something it but unfortunately there, there are a whole lot of folks that aren't doing anything and I think that's what's really bringing us down as a society is is we've got a lot of dead weight so to speak and a lot of kind of untapped potential right you could look at it negatively and say you're a lot of people sitting on their ass or you could look at it as untapped potential and that's my belief is if you could get all that brain power and all that even just arm power uh, kind of headed in the right direction to do good in the world man I think we'd be unstoppable as a people I agree is there anything that I haven't asked you that you hoped I would? <laughs> Not in a thirty-minute span. I've got a lot to talk about. Right? But no. Uh, no. I think you know. Th- uh, no. This is all big stuff, and there's there's no way to cover it all in, in a 30, 60 sixty-minute span. And I think that's just what's so powerful about about uh just any sort of this work is just having these conversations and and i think that's what's going to make the world a better place and and give a lot of people a start it's just just talking about it right and, and and nobody's figured out racism nobody's figured out how to end poverty yet but i think just having these conversations and giving a damn that that's that's where it really all starts
1: well we'll do uh we'll do this again in a few months uh we'll do a round two um, a Kevin Brown returns to the podcast edition because I, I think you're onto stuff. You've you've obviously gone many steps beyond where most people do, uh, and for that I'm I'm grateful. And just in terms of giving a damn, and like I, I think what you said about the I could talk forever about the adoption thing because that's you know we had. A failed adoption at first, and then got pregnant right away, and we've had three kids since, and we still want to adopt or foster, and we're trying to figure out how to do that well. So your thoughts on that are very important to me, and the fact that you are there, and I know you said right now you don't have a choice, right? Because they're not, there there's still a lot to work through. But that the fact that you would, that's part of your heart is like, why would we, why would we take them out of their land, out of their home, to take them to our place? Like that's that that doesn't make any sense. And I agree with you in a lot of ways, and so I, I love that. Uh, last big question here. This is this question is one that I ask every guest. The scenario is this. You're going to die someday. Hopefully it's many, many years from now. Lots of damn giving years from now, but you're going to die. The hypothetical part of this scenario is that I get asked to give your eulogy. So all of your your kids, your wife, your family, friends, all the people you've helped throughout the years, they're all there in this huge room to honor your life and legacy, to celebrate your life and legacy, and again, for some odd reason I've been asked to give your eulogy. What do you hope that I
0: would say on that day? Man, good question. I should have done my homework, so I could have thought more about this one. But uh, yeah, it's funny, I actually. I've been thinking a little bit. My birthday this summer, uh, I did the math. There's a, a guy that does videos and wears a T-shirt for how the percentage uh, of, of his life that he's lived. And this birthday for me, this summer will be technically 50% based on life expectancy. And if you want to get a kick in the pants to do something in life, uh, just do the math on how much uh, percentage left, you, you know, percentage you have left. So yeah, with, uh, with a eulogy, man, that's tough. I, th- I think it's uh, it's largely what we've talked about, but I think for me, uh, you know, hard work is, is probably the most important thing that I have cared about in my life and want to pass on to my kids. I think I always say that, uh, you probably not going to be the smartest. Uh, you're definitely not probably going to be, the, you know, the best looking or the fastest, uh, you know, all these superlatives. But um, I, I think this idea of just being able to just work your, work your tail off uh, for what you know is right, you know, doing the right thing and working your tail off. I mean, I would, I would hope that. The way that I'm remembered, um, I know I've made a lot of mistakes, and I know I will continue to make plenty of mistakes. But I, uh, I think uh, nobody would doubt that I've, I've worked hard for what I believe in, and so I think that's that's how I want to be remembered: is is for you know, kind of planting a uh, planting a flag in the ground around some some things that I believe in, and just working my ass off to try to make it happen. And I think uh, if I'm remembered for nothing else but hard work, then then that won't be a won't be a bad life. I love it. I
1: love it. I agree. Where can people, if they're interested in just finding out more about the work you do or wanting to follow up or keep in touch or whatever the case may be, what are some links, some uh, uh, URLs? Just what do you want people to take away from our time today?
0: Yeah, I mean, for Mighty Ally, it's pretty simple. It's mightyally.org.org. And we've got a blog there. We've got some social links and we're always talking about uh, these subjects and, and my email address is on there too. So if anyone hears this and wants to reach out, I mean, it, 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 it's cheesy as it sounds, it does take a village, whether it's in the professional life or personal life. And we've been uh, kind of blessed to be able to provide a, a little bit of a, of a ministry for lack of better words, to those kind of an adoption community that might've been going through some, some things that we went through. And then also in the professional world where we're out there to try to help. So hit me up if there's anything I can do and and I'd be be glad to help
1: yeah that's amazing and for those listening uh, I truly want you to take him up on that I mean even if you're I know a lot of the people listening are uh, nonprofit or social enterprise founders uh, which is really cool that we've that a lot of people have started to listen and uh, that that are leading projects running projects. Uh, I'm so sure that 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 mighty ally can help you if 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 there's a good partnership there So hit kevin up. I know that he would probably love to, you know dialogue with you about this I'm also going to link to the ted talk that he mentioned earlier on And a post that I really liked that i'll link to in the show notes as well Laying the foundation for social enterprise success five startup principles from the making of mighty ally I'm going to link to that as well. That's an article that kevin wrote last autumn and so all that will be in the show notes, including social media links and URLs and all that. Kevin, thank you so much for taking time at uh, from 9.30 to 10.30 p.m. Kampala, Uganda time. Thank you so much for joining me. This was, this was super
0: great. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. And yeah, hit me up anyone. Uh, I, I, I will stake uh, the claim that I will respond personally to anyone who sends me a personal email at any time. I, I'm not big enough by any means to not reply or to not help out a, a fellow man or fellow woman. So hit me up anytime. I love that. Thanks so much. All right, Nick. Thanks for having me.
1: Friends, thank you so much for joining me once again for another amazing conversation, this time with Kevin Brown, CEO and co-founder of Mighty Ally. I hope that you will let them and him know if you enjoyed our conversation, mightyally.org, you can contact them through that. You can also hit up their growing social media presence. Go follow them, encourage them. They're doing good work, and I'm excited to keep up with the work they're doing. I hope you will too. As we wrap up, we started a group on Facebook. I've mentioned it a couple times. I won't keep doing it, but I wanted to make sure you hear about this. We started a private Facebook group that is meant for the members of that group to encourage each other, to challenge each other toward giving more dams. And so it's called Damn Good People. You can search for Damn Good People. If you are not a crazy person or if you are not looking to start trouble, I will most likely let you in. Inside, you'll find people sharing different stories they come across, find uh, things that inspire them. For me, it's an encouragement. It's a a more focused way of sharing good news and people that are giving a damn. So if you wanna join us, do that. And if you wanna do one thing to make me very happy this week, if making me happy is on your radar in any way, shape or form, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Those reviews help more then you know. Uh, For one, it gives us credibility. And so many people have left incredible reviews already. We would love to see more on there. Don't lie, but give us a five-star review. And that'll help us continue to do what we're doing. You can check out all show notes and more information about these podcasts at letsgiveadam.com. And I will see you guys next week. Thanks so much for joining me. I love you all.